Take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Matthew chapter 5, please. About six months ago, six and a half months ago, something like that, I joined one of my co-workers. This is in the church where I served before I got here. And uh, it was spring break, and we had an office project that involved some construction that needed to be done. And in order to save the church a little bit of money, our co-worker, who once owned and operated a construction company, decided that it would be cheaper for us and quicker for us if we just did the work ourselves. And that work involved building a hallway and moving a few doors. And because I was a budding woodworker, I decided that I should help him. You should know that means that he was the talent, I was the helper. And so we began the process of moving these doors and the which is a lot more involved than what I thought it was. And so he was hauling out a bunch of tools and power tools and those kind of things, and we started the process of cutting wood down so that we could frame out one of those doors. And uh, he started using the compound miter saw that was supplied, and he cut a board with it, and I heard him mumbling something under his breath. And I wasn't really sure exactly what it was, and since I was the boss but not the talent... I decided it was a good learning opportunity for me, and I asked him what he was mumbling about and why the cast-down countenance. And he said this. He said, just look at that board. So I looked at the board, and I thought, and I said, yep, that's a board. And his response to me was, no, look at it. And so he holds it up for me, and I begin to look at it, and I, and I see that the end where the cut occurred was jagged, and the wood was torn. And I said, um, I'm not really sure what that means, but it doesn't look very good. And he said, that's exactly the point. And began to explain to me the problem that caused that. You see, according to Kevin, the saw blade that we were using was dull. And while you could exert enough force on it, and a power tool does that for you, and it would eventually cut through that, but in the cutting through that, those blades that were dull were hammering the wood instead of slicing it. And so what's left when it's all said and done is a piece of wood that for his purposes as the master craftsman was useless. I want to use that analogy and pull it into our time today because I happen to believe that in our world, a world that is increasingly suspicious and dismissive of Christianity, it may well be that we hurt the cause of Christ when we hammer people rather than be sharpened tools for the gospel. As we come to this passage today, we're going to find that Jesus takes a pretty solid stand against what I'm going to call dead religion today. And so as we work through this today, one of the things that I want to make sure that we're on the same page about is that when we talk about religion, and the way I'm going to talk about it today is not complimentary at all. So if that bothers you a little bit on the front end, then I want to invite you to just kind of stay tuned as we work our way through this because dead religion is, uh, is, is on the move out 
of our society these days. People are dismissing Christianity because they have been sold dead religion. Many years ago, almost 50 years ago to be exact, at a city park in downtown Houston, Texas. It's Herman Park. Many of you know that area and have been there, I'm sure. It's right down near the medical district. And 50 or so years ago, this young minister walked out into a gathering in Herman Park, downtown Houston, Texas. That was in the 1960s. And the hippie movement was in full sway. And this young minister walked out into a group that was gathered there, and many of them happened to be bikers, the rough-and-tumble crowd. And so this young minister walked up to one of these guys, one of the rough-looking guys with the full beard, nasty. You know what I'm talking about, the 1960s. Many of you lived through that. Now, I'm not saying you look like that, but it's hard not to look like that in the 60s, in Houston, Texas anyway. This young minister walked out into that, and he walked up to a guy intending to share the good news of Jesus Christ, the gospel with him. And when he identified himself, that biker said to him kind of in a snarl that was very aggressive, and it was one that communicated, leave me alone. He said these words, I hate religion. That was 50 years ago. But that could have occurred 50 minutes ago at any park in El Paso, Texas. In our society, religion is on the way out as far as being acceptable by most of our population group. We now opt for terms that, that push religion to the margins of our lives but elevate spirituality. And so if you listen carefully, you will hear people say, I hate religion in one way or another, but I embrace spirituality. And unfortunately, that spirituality really doesn't seem to have much structure to it for many people. How should we, Christians in the 21st century, in a society that is pushing religion to the margins of life, how should we live out our faith in such a way that we can be effective as salt and light as Jesus has called us to be? How do we do this in a society that is increasingly anti-religion? Jesus weighs in on that. We're in Matthew chapter 5. This is the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus steps in, and before he even gets up a good head of steam in this sermon, he fires a shot across the bow of the religious people. And what Jesus is going to say to those people, I'm going to put it in our terms today because it's not quite the right terminology for Matthew chapter 5. By the time we get to the end of the book of Matthew, it'll be the right terminology. But Jesus gives us some insights in what it means to live a cutting-edge kind of Christianity rather than that kind that just hammers on people. That's what religion does. We're called to be sharp and precise in the way we live our lives in a dark world. Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 17, we read these words. Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished." 
Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And here's that shot across the bow. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Does God hate religion? To finish out that story that occurred 50 years ago in downtown Houston, when that biker responded to that preacher, I hate religion, his quick response was, you know what? I think God hates religion too. Is that oversell on the preacher's part, you think? Hate might be a little bit of a strong word for us to use, especially if we're using it tied to God in any way. Well, maybe we should do a little digging on that. Let me tell you about something that happened with me because I have, I've been known to get myself in trouble every once in a while on these kind of topics. And so a number of years ago when I was serving as a youth minister, I was a youth minister in a, uh, in a town. Okay, it was, just, it was Hobbs, New Mexico. Let me just go ahead and tie it directly into the time frame. So I was youth minister there, and as their youth choir, we had, I don't know, 100 or so, 120 regular attenders in that youth group. And so they had a section of the youth group that would go on youth choir tour every year. And it was a big deal. They would go to faraway places, and they would go and sing in various places. And so it was a big deal. And so uh, the first year that I was there, the choir director came up to me and said, hey, our kids are about to go on this trip. I was going to be doing some things with the kids who weren't in choir, and so I wasn't going on the trip with them. And uh, so the choir director asked me to write a devotional for one day because what she was doing is getting different people in the church to write devotionals for the kids so before they went out to sing, they could have a, a kind of a guided devotional. And so I used the passage of Scripture that I'm about to read for you. And... Um, Well, let me just read it. Amos chapter 5. I don't know how much you know about Amos, but Amos was a lay prophet. He was a farmer, shepherd, prophet. And Amos was not necessarily popular because of his uh, prophetic message. And so in Amos chapter 5, verse 21, this is the passage that I use for the devotional for those teenagers. I hate I despise your feasts, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Okay, let me just stop for a second and let you know. This is God speaking through his prophet. With that in mind, we go to verse 22. And even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take, here, here's the one that got me in trouble. Verse 23, take away from me the noise of your songs to the melody of your harps, I will not listen. That's, for some reason, that was offensive to a choir director. Verse 24 is the one that we mostly know. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. It's amazing how those words were not appreciated by the choir director of the church in Hobbs, New Mexico, nor of the people of Amos' day as he stood and shook his bony prophetic finger in the face of a society that was getting religion right, but God was not accepting it. Maybe hate's a 
a little bit of a strong word, but then again, maybe not. I could take it. I'm not going to take the time to go there, but in, if you go to Isaiah chapter 1, verses 10 through 15, you can find uh, another passage there that would cause us to probably step back and say, well, maybe, maybe there's something to this anti-religion movement, because what we find throughout the Old Testament, especially in the prophets, is as those prophets step up and they're talking to a group of people who seem to be getting the motions right, but it's not sufficient, and God calls them to task over that. Maybe this anti-religion movement is on point after all. By now, you may be getting a little bit nervous out there about what this new preacher is going to have to say about our religion. Let's see what Jesus says, though. So in Matthew 5, verse 20, I'm going to read this again because it is the heart and soul, the thesis almost, we, we might say, of this entire Sermon on the Mount. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. That, that's shocking. The reason that's shocking is because for those first century people who are gathered listening to what Jesus has to say, he now has singled out the professional religionists of his day. There was nobody who practiced the religion of the Jewish faith like the scribes and the Pharisees. I mean, they had it down pat. We could go and look, and I'm not going to take the time now to do this either, but we could go over and look at Paul, who was a Pharisee, and look at his pedigree as he lays it out for one of those churches that he was writing to. And I mean, he got it all right, dotted all the I's, crossed all the T's, got all of the religious fervor in its proper place. Jesus steps up into that mix and he says, those scribes and Pharisees, the pros, the way they do it is not going to be sufficient to get you into the kingdom of heaven. Man, this is a good time to put yourself on that hillside with those people and listen to that in the crowd. Who are those people today? If Jesus was preaching this sermon in our day, and he decides to take on the professional religionists of his day, would he be talking about the pastors? I say no. <laughs> well, probably I should be honest enough to go, yeah, he probably would be talking about at least some of us. Maybe he's talking about the deacons or Sunday school teachers. Or maybe he's talking about the professional religionists who populate our churches who care more about protocol than they do about people. Who are the scribes and the Pharisees of our day that Jesus might have been speaking to? I was involved in a church one time started reaching, this church did, started reaching some of the uh, dregs of society. Some of those people that good church people wouldn't want hanging around their church. And those people started showing up for church. How would the professional religionists handle people like that? You see, one of the problems that we face when we come to handle Scripture 
is when we start getting to things that start nudging us in our comfort zone, then we want to lock it into first century. And so, as church people, we regularly will take it to the scribes and the Pharisees because Jesus did, and after all, we all like to play pile on. And Jesus piles on with them. I mean, he does not cut them any slack. As a matter of fact, let me just go ahead and jump up a little bit. We'll go to Matthew chapter 23 because in Matthew chapter 23, there's a series of woes that Jesus gives. And now we're at the tail end of Jesus' ministry, according to Matthew's gospel. And in Matthew 23, Jesus comes back at the scribes and Pharisees. I pick up reading in verse 2. The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do, for they preach, but do not practice. You notice how Jesus doesn't mind getting personal about stuff? You know that verse 3 is the argument that anti-religionists use in our day against church people. You preach, but you don't practice. Verse 4, they, now he's back to the scribes and Pharisees. They tie up heavy burdens hard to bear and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, and they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues. Verse 7, and greetings in the marketplace and being called rabbi by others. I'll stop reading there. Let me just take you to an airplane on a ride that Teresa and I were taking that left uh, Newark, New Jersey, somewhere in the middle of the night and made its way over to Tel Aviv. And somewhere about daybreak, boom, 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 all around the plane, people started jumping up and they were putting on their religious garb and they were doing all kinds of things. And as it turns out, these were uh, devout Jews uh, priests who were popping up because of the time of day that it was, it was time for prayers. And so they popped up and they did, and they went to wherever they could get on the plane. And they began to do their praying. And somewhere in the midst of that time frame, the pilot comes on to the announcement and says, uh, we are now in such and such a spot, airspace, and the rules and the laws uh, dictate that everybody now must take their seats and remain in their seats for the duration of the flight. And I watched as these devout priests ignored law in order to do their thing. That was an interesting study for me. For one thing, just so that you don't think I'm just taking it to those guys, I don't see that kind of devotion from most preachers that I know, maybe not even in myself. See, Jesus steps into this mix and he begins to deal with a group of people. And he's talking about this group of people. And he's shooting shells across their bow as a way of saying to them, hey, you're giving the wrong example, the scribes and the Pharisees. Back to Matthew chapter 5. What we find Jesus doing here is underscoring Remember that piece of wood I was talking about earlier? He's underscoring the fact that religionists tend to hammer rather than be strategic in the cut. People suffer because of that. When we 
Christians in the 21st century began to adopt a religious persona instead of reality where Jesus has come in and made a difference in us. When we begin to do that, we open ourselves up for abusing people and hurting people. I have a friend. Matter of fact, it was last Sunday before I left uh, East Texas to come out here. A friend who was in the church brought a friend of his up to me. His friend lives up in the Pacific Northwest, and he had come down, and they had grown up in the Beaumont area. But he came down, and he began to talk to me. This friend, this, my friend was talking to me about his friend who was with him, and he said this is the first time that he has been in church in about 20 years. And I looked at the guy, and I said, well, welcome back. He said, man, he said, and he began to tell me about what caused him to abandon church. You know what it caused him to abandon church? Church people. And we can look around here today and know that there are people who are not here. In any church in America today, there are people who are not here because religionists have not handled them well. Like a dull saw just beating on a piece of wood. The Pharisees did all the right stuff. And they avoided doing the wrong stuff. And on the outside, it looked like they had it all together. But Jesus saw through that, and Jesus had little regard for that. So Jesus steps into the mix of all of that. And before I give you the better way that he offers, let me just give you two quick reasons why I think we should opt for cutting-edge Christianity. Here's the first one. Religion gives the appearance of life, but it harbors death inside. It's like going to a mausoleum where the outside of the building looks great and they clean it and they keep it painted and they keep the marble polished and all of that, but you do just a little digging behind the marble and what you get is death. That's what happens with religion. Jesus later will say of these Pharisees and the scribes that they are whitewashed tombs. Something's not right here. Paul later will use it this way. He'll talk to Timothy and talk about those who have an appearance of godliness but deny its power. Religion has the appearance of life, but it harbors death. The other one for me is that religion leads people away from life. And we remember what Jesus has said already in this sermon, that we are to be salt and light, and we're to reflect life into them that only Jesus can, can give. And when we opt for religion, we begin to adopt a lifestyle that is dead. It's works-based kind of religion. And so maybe you're here today. Let me cut to the chase of why this sermon in the first place. It's very possible with a crowd like this that some of us here today have opted for a religious approach, and we think that if we can just do enough good stuff, then maybe at the end of life, Jesus will weigh it all out and we'll have just one more good work than the bad works and that'll tilt the scale in our favor and he'll let us in. Let me tell you something. If doing good works could tilt the scale in our favor, the Pharisees would have made it. But Jesus says unless your righteousness goes beyond theirs, you don't get in. And so we're supposed to reflect this life to people 
And when we hold up, if we happen to hold up works-based kind of salvation where we believe in, we just teach if you just do these things and you don't do the wrong things. You, there's words that we don't use like dance. My goodness, we sang a whole song about dancing in a Baptist church. You know, a hundred years ago, that'd get the music guy fired and the preacher in some Baptist churches. That's religion. You know the old saying, if it looks like a duck and it walks like a duck, are you with me? Audience participation time, help me with this one. If it looks like a duck and it walks like a duck and it quacks like a duck, then it's a duck. Apparently Jesus doesn't think so. Because if it looks like religion, if it looks like righteousness and walks that way and quacks that way, then it must be a Pharisee. Well, that's a little bit of a twist of what Jesus is saying. What Jesus is saying here is you can do all the right things like the Pharisees and still not make it in. So if you're here today and your whole life has been about doing the right things, well, maybe it wasn't always that way. Maybe you've had your, your uh, adventure in doing the wrong things. And so now you're trying to make up for that. If you just do the right things. Let me just tell you, it, it's not going to work. It doesn't work. You can't ever do enough of the right things. Because there's... All of us suffer from the same thing that the Pharisees suffered from, and that is we have a sin nature that separates us from God. It's not on the outside that counts. It's what's on the inside that counts. That's what Jesus is saying to them. He's saying this externally specific religion won't cut it as far as entry into the kingdom of heaven. Jesus doesn't just condemn the Pharisees, and he doesn't just condemn those of us who opt for a religious lifestyle. He doesn't just condemn. He offers a better way. And we're going to work our way through the Sermon on the Mount starting next week. And he's going to hold up these things that the Pharisees would have said, there you go. See, I don't murder anybody. That means I'm righteous. Jesus is going to say, that's not true. If you have an anger issue, see how Jesus doesn't care if he gets offensive? If you have an anger issue, then you got to fix that. But you can't fix that. That's kind of the point here. Religion will leave you lacking. Jesus is so revolutionary with what he's about to offer here that he starts off in verse 17 by giving them a disclaimer. Look, I'm not suggesting that you do away with the law. That's verse 17. What he's about to say is going to make them think, well, we'll just do away with the law then. Jesus said, no, that's not right. The key word to interpret the whole thing is the word fulfilled. Jesus says, I fulfill the law and the prophets you really want to get to the sense of that. Where I looked it up in Greek, you know what fulfill means in Greek? Fulfill. <laughs> it means to fill full. I go to Starbucks every once in a while. I like to call it four bucks. And when I go to Starbucks and get a regular coffee, uh, first of all, they don't understand regular coffee. But they often ask me, do you want to leave room in that? That means room for cream and sugar. I said, no, I'm a man. I drink it black. <laughs> but just take that picture, and here's a cup of coffee that 
they put underneath the spigot and they turn the spigot on and they walk off and for about 45 seconds coffee just pours into that cup until the point that it gets to the top and then when it gets to the top it still keeps on going and what happens to it it overflows that's the word fulfill in greek there is no room for anything else jesus comes in and he says i have come to fill it full jesus let me just finish this way Jesus comes and he says, the religion that is being held up as the ideal doesn't get you there. For Christians in 21st century America, we can't hold up a bunch of do's and don'ts and expect that to win people for the cause of Christ. People get beat up with religion, but they get saved with Jesus Christ. And if you're here today and you're tired of getting beat up, I would suggest that you walk away from religion and run to Jesus Christ who helps you to live life on the cutting edge and it is good stuff. Do you know him today? Let's pray. And as we pray, let me issue the invitation to you. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, then life seems a lot harder most of the time. It's not that Jesus is going to take all the problems away from you because he won't do that, but he will take you through the problems and he will fix the biggest problem that every one of us has, and that is that we are separated from a holy God by our sin. And he steps into the mix and he says, religion won't do it, but I will. I have come that you may have life. If you don't have that life today, why would you even think about walking out of this building without getting it? Because it's a free offer from him. This invitation time is to help you with those kind of decisions. So, Father, use this time for your glory. Be honored in it. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing.